Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So I have a question prompted off what's been in the news, and this has always bothered me. Why is a grand jury called a grand jury? Like, what is especially grand about a grand jury? It is august. It is an august oh. body. No, I don't think that's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's distinguished I think, and elevated. No, I think the reason is that it's larger than a pettit jury. A pettit jury. A petite has, jury. Yeah, except for some reason it's called pettit. Yeah, that's another thing I don't get. It has like 12 or 14, depending on how you count, and a grand jury has 23. Hmm. Fun fact. 23, by the way, a very odd number. Yeah. A prime number. Why? I don't know, because they don't all show up. Maybe they need to be able to break a tie, so you want an odd number. Okay. I think the reason it's just it's grand in the sense of big. Big. And they think grand thoughts. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Never served on a jury, not for lack of trying. I have served on a jury. I was on a jury voir dire panel with Eric Holder and Harvey Rishikoff. Good Lord. That is so Washington. That's so Washington. <laughs> you know what that is? That's grand. <laughs> but it was a pettit jury. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Isn't It Grand Jury Edition. Isn't it grand? Isn't it grand? This is the Cole Porter edition of Rational Security. Isn't, isn't it grand? I'm thinking of Send in the Clowns. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that song is so sad. It is, and there's. it also has that great moment described in a Maureen Dowd column where Maureen Dowd is sitting in the Bombay Club and Monica Lewinsky is across the room and Monica goes up to the pianist and says, play Send in the Clowns, and then walks over to Maureen Dowd and says, why do you write such mean things about me? Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> that is incredible. Monica Lewinsky just has the sickest, funniest burns on Twitter too. Uh, no, I, I got to say, that was when I read that Maureen Dowd, Maureen Dowd wrote it up. Of as course. Though, I mean, I would, too. And so yeah. it said something bad about Monica. But oh, really? when, no. when I read that column, I was like, that was the first time I was like, wow, I, I, I have respect for this one. Oh, she has such a good sense of humor. I love that. Oh, my God. I want to do that. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio where we could sing Cole Porter or Joni Mitchell or whoever. All Where are there. the clowns? Oh my, my good friend. There's your cue. <laughs> my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Coffin Wittes. No clowns, you two. How are you? Okay, Shane. How are you? I'm good. Do I hear cicadas in the background? You do. You almost do. They are really loud. Inside with the windows closed and you can hear them. I was at a friend's house the other night and he has a lot of cicadas. We don't have them really at our house at all. Um, but it was very much like the sound effect from like Plan Nine from Outer Space, or like the day the Earth stood still. Was like, whoa, 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 whoa. yeah, yeah. It was it was really quite something. Well, wow. it's actually like white noise. I find it oddly soothing. Yeah, I could see that. Except it's really loud white. Noise. <laughs> it's filled with bugs. On the podcast this week, the prosecutor and the Trump criminal probe convenes a grand jury to hear evidence and weigh potential charges. The skyjacking, I'm going to call it that, of a commercial airliner over Belarus sparks international condemnation, and a former Saudi intelligence official could spill classified information in a U.S. court. Not in front of a grand jury. I think it's well past that. Let us start, though, with the, the grand, the grandest jury. It's the most beautiful jury. It's the grandest jury anyone's ever Everyone's seen. Everyone's saying so. Yeah. Everyone says how grand this jury is. I doubt that Trump would say that about this particular. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't think he finds anything grand or remotely humorous about this. But uh, I will read from the story that 
Uh, my colleagues Shana Jacobs and David Fernhall broke yesterday in the Post. Uh, Manhattan's district attorney has convened the grand jury that is expected to decide whether to indict former President Donald Trump, other executives at his company, or the business itself should prosecutors present the panel with criminal charges, according to two people familiar with the development. Uh, the panel, we report, was convened recently. It'll sit three days a week for six months, likely to hear several matters, not just the Trump case during its term. Generally, special grand juries such as this are convened to participate in long-term matters with them to, them to hear evidence of crimes charged routinely. So we're going to do a little point-counterpoint on this, Ben. You're going to argue that this is a BFD. It's a big deal. And I'm going to argue that maybe it's not really. And then Tammy gets to decide who's right. Excellent. Excellent. So, Ben, you go first. You think this is a very big development. Much of Twitter and cable news agrees with you. State your case. So I want to be careful because anytime you have a grand jury, there's always a chance that a case does not materialize. And you know, grand juries, the cliche is that a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. But, you know, a grand jury did not indict uh, Andy McCabe, despite a prosecutor's request, which I suppose proves that Andy McCabe is not a ham sandwich. Uh, you know, look, I think that it is a big deal in the following sense. We have had a investigation out of the Manhattan DA's office for a while now. The Attorney General of New York recently joined, teamed up and, you know, joined this investigation in some sense, her investigation no longer being purely civil. And you don't convene a special grand jury in order not to bring a case. So I think as a reflection of prosecutorial intent, it shows that the Manhattan DA's office and the attorney general's office in New York are, at least at this stage, based on what they know now, planning to present information to the grand jury, presumably, which they're not doing recreationally, presumably because they have a case to bring against somebody or, because, or they anticipate doing so. That is a big deal. There are a hundred things that could get in the way of it actually happening. But I think if you go from where we were a week ago to where we are today, a week ago, there was an investigation that was proceeding at whatever pace it was proceeding. And right now, we have a grand jury convened in order to hear evidence in this particular set of matters. And so I think as a as a indicator of what prosecutors intend to do, it's a pretty clear reflection, I think, that you I think you wouldn't do this if you didn't mean to bring an indictment against somebody. So I'll put on my 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 more jade. And I will say by the way, I tend to agree with much of what you said, but for playing devil's advocate for counterpoint, I'll put my my more jaded reporter hat on here, <clears throat> which is that, you know, grand juries get convened. And it didn't always used to be the case that, you know, newspapers reported on any time a grand jury convened because that may be all that happens and maybe they don't hear evidence or maybe they don't return an indictment. So there's a sense in which and by no means am I minimizing the reporting that my colleagues did, which was terrific. And of course, this is different because it involves the former president. But I also kind of feel like, A, maybe it won't materialize into anything. And B, maybe more importantly, there's kind of an embedded assumption that may be a bit of wishful thinking that I think a lot of people are making, and I'm not accusing you of making this, Ben, that this means that, oh, Donald Trump is about to be criminally indicted, when it might mean that, you know, his accountants are about to be indicted, or that people in the company who, you know, most people have never heard of or have forgotten, like Alan Weisselberg, might be indicted, which, okay, you know, is significant, but that is a far cry from what I think a lot of people want to believe, you know, in this news, which is that Donald Trump is one step closer to being put in handcuffs and taken you know, to Rikers or something. And I just think that's, you know, getting way, way ahead of things. Tammy. Yeah. Okay. So picking up on your last point, Shane, I do feel like ever since Donald Trump glided down that escalator, 
back in 2015. The golden escalator. There's been this belief by a lot of people in a kind of deus ex machina that would somehow remove him from the political scene, remove him from the threat that many people believe he presents to our democratic system, etc. And, you know, two impeachments and an election that he lost later, some people still are looking for that deus ex machina. And I think that that explains the kind of the glomming on to this story that you're describing, Shane, as opposed to what the story may actually mean, which is what Ben is laying out. But here's the question I have for you guys. Like, okay, a grand jury is convened. It could still be weeks and weeks before they indict, as you said, some other person who worked in the Trump organization. Why do we even know about this right now? Why is this in the newspaper? Yeah, so this is, I think, the strongest point in favor of Shane's side of the argument, which is... I love it when you argue against your own side of the argument. No, I, I look, I report, <laughs> you decide, you know. <laughs> if, if I were making Shane's case, uh, the fact that Letitia James last week basically announced that she had a criminal investigation, which is generally something you shouldn't do as a prosecutor, and this is something that, by the way, a prosecutor, you know, this is somebody who campaigned on right. the promise of indicting Donald Trump and really should be recused from from this matter. Uh, and then this week, not to be outdone, Cyrus Vance appears to have, uh, or somebody connected with the prosecution side, because defense lawyers need, probably don't know about this yet, appears to have told the Washington Post you know, well, I'll see you have an open criminal investigation. I've got a special grand jury. And, you know, these are not the Southern District of New York who have an incentive to keep everything quiet. These are elected politicians. And so I do think one reason for skepticism that these are, you know, that this is a harbinger of something, uh, at least in the immediate sense, is just that you know, these are pretty clearly prosecution side leaks or disclosures. In Letitia James's case, let's just be clear, not a leak, but a but a but a overt disclosure. And they are, you know, being done with an eye a real eye toward the politics. And I do think that's always a reason for skepticism of, of prosecutions. Those same incentives, of course, greatly militate toward bringing a case. Because if you're a Cy Vance and you've ginned up, you, you've got a, had a whole Supreme Court case, and then you have a, a grand jury convened, and then you kind of slink away in the middle of the night, having once, by the way, let Ivanka Trump off the hook, which he did, uh, you look pretty stupid. And so I actually think one of the dangerous things that these prosecutors are doing is they're they're painting themselves into a corner where they almost have to bring a case. Now, that doesn't mean indict Donald Trump necessarily. It could mean the Trump organization or, but I do think it is really the better part of valor if, you know, they would just shut up and, and let, <laughs> and let do their, the work and do yeah. the work and let their court filing speak for them. Yeah, and that's where I would pick up if I were going to make, you know, Ben's case for him. And, and, and the strongest piece of evidence is just that, that this is, this becomes such a public display, right? That at this point, it would be pretty politically stupid to be leaking that you've convened a grand jury if you didn't really think you were going to have the grand jury, you know, hear evidence to return an indictment. And also, you would just give ammunition to the guy it's you're not. going after, to come back and say what a witch hunt this was and how you had nothing. One note of caution on that, you know, a lot of people said very similar things about Letitia James and the NRA. And when she came forward with her suit against the NRA, <laughs> it was, I think the technical term is a fucking whopper. Yeah. And, you know, the Trump organization is a corrupt organization and it does, you know, we know a lot about it and how it's behaved because of your colleague, David Farenholt. And nothing we've learned about it makes an indictment seem like it would be excessive or inappropriate. 
And so I, I do think one possibility here is that they're behaving a little bit inappropriately in, in the way they're talking about it. But then when they come forward with an actual indictment, it's going to be a kind of holy shit thing. Just in the last minute or two we have left in this segment, I mean, Tammy, just politically speaking, I mean, I know we, we could speculate endlessly about this, but what does your instinct tell you that if this there is a criminal indictment, and let's just say that they get the big fish and they actually indict Donald Trump for fraud, that that you know, ultimately helps or hurts him politically? I mean, both, right? It'll it'll give him a big, you know, target against which to rally the base and raise money for his defense. That's how he used his election loss. Um, he's clearly thinking about that approach because he was so quick to come out with a statement in response to this news yesterday. Um, a statement of defiance and, you know, that it's the biggest scam in, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it will help in that sense. As a practical matter, it could complicate any attempt to run for the Republican nomination if he has to be in court or he has to be defending himself in court. But I think if Ben is right and there is, you know, whatever case there is, is likely to be very complex it's going to take a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of motions back and forth before you ever get to trial. And and so it might not end up being that big a factor. I can't help but think of, you know, of Benjamin Netanyahu, who, okay, the Israeli legal system functions very differently, but he's been under indictment on corruption charges and has run for re-election three times <laughs> in the course of that. And, you know, his trial is ongoing and he may be running again. So I'm not sure it presents such a bar. Yeah, I think he'd wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, TBD. Stay tuned. Uh, other developing news. Not much of a segue or a transition, but that'll work. On Sunday, Ryan Air Flight 4978, this is an Irish airline, between Athens and Vilnius, Lithuania, was forced to land in Minsk by Belarusian authorities. Uh, a journalist, an opposition journalist on board, Roman Protasevich, if I'm pronouncing that, am I pronouncing Protasevich correctly? Correctly ish. Correctly ish. Yeah, close enough. Uh, a pretty prominent opposition journalist, I believe he is only 26 years old, uh, was arrested, could face 12 years or more in prison. I think there's a credible threat that he could be executed. Uh, he certainly thought so and uh, reportedly was yelling that to passengers on the plane after he was forcibly removed. <clears throat> so the official statement on this is that the plane was forced to land because the pilots were told there might be a bomb on board, some kind of IED that was planted by Hamas. Because Hamas has been so regularly known to target Irish flights from Athens to Vilnius. Yes, totally, totally. Um, I think quickly was, I think the, uh, the official term for this uh, theory is horse shit. Yeah. Uh, and it was very clear that uh, this plane was forced down uh, over this other country precisely so that authorities could arrest this journalist. Um, President Biden has called the diversion of the plane, quote, a direct affront to international norms. He said as his administration will develop appropriate options to hold those accountable. There have the EU has agreed to impose sanctions on Belarus and bar EU airlines from the country's airspace, which seems pretty prudent at this point, uh, since authorities Force down this Ryanair jet. Tammy, I want to come to you first on this. My question is, what is the Belarusian, and by that, I guess I really mean the Russian calculation here. Um, the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, doesn't brush his teeth without asking the Kremlin first. Uh, and it sure seems that by engaging in what is clearly a reckless and possibly an illegal act, and the Locker podcast, a good segment on this, looking at some of those issues, that you know, Lukashenko has decisively cast his lot with Putin, which maybe won't come as a great surprise to people. But my thought was, you know, whatever slim chance that country may have had about being a member of the European community, or at the very least, not just becoming ostracized and isolated, that's gone now. And he seems to have basically said, yep, we're with we're with the Russians on this, who were very quick to come out and praise this publicly as a successful intelligence operation, which I think um, the technical term for that is ballsy. 
are there others probably too? So what do you think? I mean, what, what, what comes to your mind as you think about like what he is calculating as the, as the president of this country does this relatively crazy thing? I mean, we can talk about how relatively crazy it is. And I think that's part of, part of the point here actually, but to my mind, Shane, there was really never, <laughs> never any possibility that Belarus under this dictatorship was going to lean toward Western democratic Europe. The partnership with Putin's Russia and not just the partnership, but the modeling on Putin's Russia has been very explicit and very strong for a good while. Remember, you know, that over the course of the last year, Belarusians thousands and thousands of them risked their lives in public protests against fraudulent elections. And the regime responded quite harshly, got a lot of Western criticism, but not a lot of concrete consequences other than the fact that Western governments and European governments were willing to host Belarusian dissidents and gave them sanctuary. And, and that takes us to why did he do this? You know, Anne Applebaum had a great article in The Atlantic about the Navalny case a couple of weeks ago, and was she make the she made the point that Putin's whole strategy in going after Navalny relentlessly, transnationally, going after dissidents in other countries, the whole point is to make clear to the Russian people that there is no point in dissenting. There is no point in resisting. And I think that's what's going on here as well. It's the same strategy. You can flee. You can you know, go into exile and do your journalism abroad. There's no point you will still get crushed. And that's a message not just to exiles, but to Belarusians who live in the country and are every day making choices about how to deal with the horrific regime that they live under. Because ultimately, the greatest threat to an authoritarian regime comes from mass mobilization against it. And that's exactly what they're trying to avoid, whether we're talking about Russia or Belarus. So that's what I think is going on. I want to say, too, that this is a trend. It, Putin started it with, you know, the skirball poisoning and other sort of extraterritorial going after dissenters. But, you know, the Iranians have assassinated dissenters abroad. The Saudis assassinated Jamal Khashoggi abroad. This is a trend. And it's precisely why, you know, Congressman Tom Malinowski made this point after Jamal's murder, that if we do not push back hard and make these regimes pay a price for the violations of international norms in going after their dissidents across borders, then we will see more of it. And I think that's clearly what is going on here. So I agree with all of that. I also think there is a particularity of the Russian-Belarusian relationship here that's important. And it doesn't have a simple analog in any of the other countries that Tamara mentions. The only the other country that it has an analog to is Ukraine. Russia does not really acknowledge that, except in a very formal sense, that Belarus is an independent country. And, you know, this is what, what the Russians call the near abroad which is a way of saying kind of sphere of influence, is particularly acute with respect to countries that, that the language, the native language spoken in is from a Russian point of view, not a real language. It's merely a dialect of Russian. Russians often don't acknowledge that Ukrainian is a real language and therefore that Ukraine is a real country. And there's a very similar effect with respect to Belarus. And so, you know, for, for Putin to have a monstrous puppet in, in Belarus who kind of behaves like a, you know, a brutal mini Putin and does all the things that Putin does with respect to, you know, brutally putting down protests and also you know, attacking dissidents abroad, but who does it in a way that brings Belarus closer to Russia, right, and forces it out of the international community and back into a closer relationship with Russia is extremely useful from Putin's point of view in a, 
in that kind of reestablishing of uh, Russian hegemony, not that it was ever really questioned with respect to Belarus, but in kind of making it all one entity again. And so I think everything that Tamara says is right, but there's also an aspect of this that's just kind of simple imperialism. You know, you sort of make make Belarus or have Belarus, have in Belarus somebody who will do stuff that makes Belarus enough of a pariah that you're the only address for them to go back to. Yeah, I think the other piece of this is that there's a clear bet on Putin's part that the European governments will not be able to respond to this in a unified manner. And that indeed provoking them in this way is a good way of driving further wedges between them. And so it's, I think, powerful to see the strong immediate response from European governments in the wake of this incident. But let's see how long it lasts and let's see how how hard they're willing to push, whether they can sustain. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So this brings up the question then as well: How do we, you know, punish Belarus? How do we punish the Russians? How do we send signals that this is unacceptable, etc.? And the White House has announced that next month. President Biden and President Putin will have a summit meeting in Geneva. They're doing it, I think, on a Wednesday while we're recording, which is very inconsiderate. They could I do know. it. On, Come on, guys. Do it on Tuesday. Seriously. We have nothing to chew over. It's going to be old, stale business by next Wednesday, so we say. But this really raises the question of whether or not we just offered a big reward to Vladimir Putin. And you are hearing some people make that criticism. Um, there obviously are reasons why the Russian and the American president should be communicating. But, you know, I even saw some former intelligence officials who worked Russia uh, openly saying, you know, oh, no, is this like us trying to do the reset again, the dreaded reset? Have we not learned our lesson? And feeling like maybe we were rewarding Putin when we should have been trying to punish him or at least not, you know, giving him goodies uh, in the wake of this skyjacking. So what do you guys think? I mean, is this I mean, we can't really look at the summit meeting separate from this incident with the Ryanair jet like you can't really disentangle them. Uh, is the summit you know, now a good idea or should we have waited? I want to put down a marker on this. The summit was never a good idea and it is now an indefensible idea. And to go forward with it is to allow Russia, the sort of fig leaf of distance from this action. If Vladimir Putin had forced down a plane with a dissident on it, there's no way the summit would have gone forward, uh, forced down in Russia. And so if you believe that this is Lukashenko acting as Putin's puppet, which I do, you shouldn't give him the fig leaf. Having said that, even before this happened, the summit was not a good idea. Why should Biden be doing with Vladimir Putin what Trump was doing with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin? We shouldn't be letting these people play dress up. Yeah, look, um, Vladimir, the, the president of Russia and the head of North Korea are not on an equivalent plane in terms of global politics. 
or in terms of their relationship with the United States. And I don't think that it's feasible for the United States to simply not engage with the Russians on a whole host of things. That is not to say that it's necessarily the right thing to go forward with this summit at this moment in light of what just happened. Um, but I don't think that that's the appropriate analogy or parallel or comparison point. I do think that the Biden administration is trying to figure out how to deal with relations both with China and with Russia, two very different cases, but two states with a lot of international influence, um, with a lot of engagement with American partners, and whose cooperation we need to deal with certain international problems like North Korea and Iran. And so I, I just don't think it's realistic to say we're going to treat Vladimir Putin like an international pariah. I think it's a question of how you modulate. And, you know, we can argue about whether this particular modulation is or is not apt with this particular timing, but it's just not black and white. Okay, so I actually accede to the point that the comparison with Kim Jong-un is not a good one. That said, I don't see any reason why you would have a summit without something to announce. We don't have an agreement to announce. We don't have, uh, you know, it is perfectly fine for them to chat by phone, for them to meet at a multi-lad in a, in a side conversation. But when you set up a summit, you're setting up as though there is something, there's some significant piece of business to do. And I just don't think we should be doing that with Putin right now. Yeah, I mean, it may be that there are other ways to go about this. They should make him meet us in a McDonald's. <laughs> a Starbucks. A Starbucks. Actually, we should, they should take him to the burger joint that, uh, what was that burger joint that Medvedev and Obama went to? Oh, yeah, the one in Virginia. Was that a Five Guys? No. No, it wasn't a Five Guys. It was a, it was, it, they're very good burgers. I think they closed down, though. Huh. Yeah, maybe we could squeeze Putin Ray's in there. Hell Ray's Hellburger. Ray's Hellburger. Ray's Hellburgers. I'm not sure Putin would want to fly to the United States right now. <laughs> sure, you can fly over our territory. No problem. Having a lot of luck with that lately, aren't you? Ah, moving on to... God, there's not really a transition for this. People in this exile. Is the, this is the no segue edition. This is no segue. Topic three. <laughs> <laughs> You did that really well. John McLaughlin. Yeah. The answer is, fuck Vladimir Putin. Topic three. (laughs) A man who grew up with the McLaughlin group. Right. God, I love that show so much. It really, I do consider it one of the great regrets of my career in journalism, but I never got to go on that show with that man. I mean, seriously. Oh, this Jesuit madman. I loved him. I loved everything with that show. The the SNL sketches of that show, by the way, I saw as a child before I ever saw the show and was like, this exists? He worked in the Nixon White House. Oh, I have no doubt. (laughs) I mean, I just, I just, he's the the coolest thing. Um, Let's now switch gears and now for something completely different. Uh, My colleague at the Post, David Ignatius, had a very good column about a fascinating case involving a man <clears throat> named Saad al-Jabri, which may not be familiar to listeners of the podcast, uh, but suffice to say, you know the people that Saad al-Jabri used to work for and probably know many of the cases that he was involved in. So he was a former top Saudi intelligence officer who is credited with helping to build the kingdom's counterterrorism capability. Um, and in the process of that became a, a very kind of in the CIA's view, indispensable partner in the fight against Al-Qaeda and other forms of terrorism. Uh, He's credited with, among other things, helping to foil the famous printer cartridge bomb plot, which could have potentially killed hundreds of innocent people. Uh, And the CIA really sees Al-Jabri as kind of one of, you know, it's trusted partners over the years. Uh, he was also very close and worked for Mohammed bin Nayef, who you will remember from the Saudi Game of Thrones, season six, whatever we're on now, uh, was formerly the crown prince and then was ultimately deposed, pushed aside, however you want to call it, by Mohammed bin Salman, who everybody remembers needs no introduction. Al-Jabri has left Saudi Arabia. He is now living in exile in Canada. Uh, I think at least one, if not two of his children are there, but importantly, two of his other children are in Saudi Arabia. 
uh, where they are effectively, I think it's fair to say, being held as you know prisoners of the state. And the government of Saudi Arabia has been coming after Al Jabri in a number of ways, but one of them is through a lawsuit, uh, which is currently moving through the courts in Massachusetts, alleging that he basically embezzled or skimmed money off of a Saudi company, uh, and they want to hold him accountable for that. Al Jabri's very interesting response to that is to say, yeah, this company that you're naming in this complaint, actually, it was set up in conjunction with the CIA and the Saudi intelligence services to basically be a conduit for us to pay for joint counterterrorism operations with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, And if you're going to come after me charging embezzlement, I'm going to have to talk about all the things that we did together, which has now prompted the Justice Department to go, hold the phone. (laughs) We may have to intervene in this case and essentially declare that there is a state secrets privilege, which would then probably just kill the case outright. So this is what I find so interesting about this, right, is that El-Jabri, who is a legit friend of the CIA and a lot of people in U.S. intelligence, is like on the surface threatening to spill secrets in court. But I don't think that's actually what he's really about. This seems like a very good way of getting the U.S. government to come in and through the state secrets privilege, shut down this case and get the Saudis off your back. Uh, okay, so let's come back to what what the Justice Department may or may not do with respect to the case in a few minutes. I want to talk for a minute about what is really going on here with respect to Saudi Arabia. So as you noted, this guy was the senior aide to Mohammed bin Nayef. Mohammed bin Nayef, even more than al-Jabri himself, was America's tight counterterrorism partner against al-Qaeda, lauded and thought very warmly of by a whole host of CIA directors um, and and, uh, directors of national intelligence. And so when he was pushed aside as crown prince, when stories about his supposed profligacy and drug addiction and other things were splashed in the Saudi press, when he was placed under house arrest, he found that that really dismayed a lot of people in the intelligence community in Washington, as well as all these former senior officials. And, you know, he, he is still basically under house arrest. The only question is whether the Saudi state is going to go ahead and prosecute him the way they have now prosecuted Al Jabri's children on trumped up charges. So, you know, what's really going on here is still the Game of Thrones. This is still Mohammed bin Salman trying to consolidate his own control and his branch of the family's control over the Saudi throne and the succession, because Mohammed bin Salman is not yet king. And until that happens, there's still a chance that he might not become king. And Mohammed bin Nayef is no doubt his biggest rival. So, you know, for better or worse, I think Al-Jabri's fate is, as David said in his column, tied to Mohammed bin Nayef's fate. And it may be that the most effective thing the United States government could do is talk quietly behind the scenes to the Saudi royal family and Mohammed bin Salman about a graceful uh, resolution of Mohammed bin Nayef's issues. And if that happens, I think al-Jabri will be okay too. But as long as Mohammed bin Salman feels insecure in his reign, then I think this this poor guy in Canada is stuck. And I think his, his two poor kids who are now imprisoned on bullshit charges are also stuck. Finally, I'll just say that this thing of taking children hostages in order to get their parents to come back to Saudi Arabia, this is not by any means the only case. Yeah, so on the specific matter uh, of the Justice Department's intervention, Shane, I think your point is exactly right. This isn't really about evidence, it's about gray mail. And, you know, in the criminal context, if a defendant were to say, hey, I, I can defend myself in this against this criminal charge you've brought against me, I just have to spill a lot of secrets in order to do it. There's a law that governs that case. It's called the Classified Information Procedures Act, and it sets up a, a sort of an elaborate system of summaries of evidence that 
alleviate this problem of people threatening to reveal classified material in order to uh, advantage themselves in litigation, SEPA doesn't apply in the civil context. And what the government has instead is basically the ability to walk into court and assert the state secrets privilege and say, hey, this litigation can't go forward or this material can't be presented in this case because it would compromise major intelligence operations. In this case, it sounds like it really would because the guy is actually a, a, a CIA partner in major counterterrorism operations. And so what he's doing is he's saying, hey, the process of defending myself here requires me to release a whole lot of information, thereby inviting the U.S. government to come in and say, court, please deep six this litigation so we don't have to give up these intelligence secrets. The court will, I suspect, comply with that. And, uh, you know, the state secrets privilege is often used as a way uh, of the United States government avoiding accountability for its own behavior. Uh, but here it's actually being used in, I think, a bit more of an attractive way, which is a way of getting the U.S. government to get the Saudi government to stop using U.S. litigation to go after, a uh, not a dissident, but a disfavored uh, person. So I, I think it is it's a really interesting development, and it'll be interesting to see what the Justice Department actually says if, if and when they, they intervene. Is it that unusual? I don't know if I even know or not, but I mean, state secrets gets thrown around a lot, but I, I'm not aware of many cases <clears throat> in which the government has, I don't want to say threatened, but announced that it might intervene and, and invoke state secrets in what is, in this case, a civil matter. That seems also kind of unusual for sort of the the legal nerds among us. I mean, that's a, and, and one that certainly Al Jabri's lawyers had every confidence would happen the moment that they invoked the name of this, you know, apparent Saudi front company essentially and said, you know, you want to open up the books? Great. So I am not a state secrets privilege expert, but I, I believe, and I'll correct myself next week if I get this wrong. Um, I believe the answer is the privilege is available to the government when government secrets are at issue, not merely when the government is a defendant or party to the case. So, you know, I think the government can't gag Al-Jabri from saying what he knows, but it can ask the court to not let certain questions be litigated because they can't be litigated without revealing, you know, classified material that the government has a privilege against releasing. And so usually this comes up when the government is a party to the case, but it is not always the case that that's true. And thank you for that, because that helps me understand something that was confusing me which is that if the United States government were to try and constrain his, his defense out of fear of revealing government secrets, then it's basically, isn't it helping MBS succeed in silencing this guy in two, you know, in two ways rather than just one? And, and so I found it a sort of a perverse possibility. But if I understand you correctly, Ben, what you're saying is, they can't actually constrain what this guy says in his own defense. Is that correct? They can stop discovery. Right. They can stop, like, if he went out and gave an interview. Right. They can't gag him. Okay. Right? And but, he has no security clearance to violate, I don't know. Right, right, exactly. Right. He's so, not obligated so to them. He, but if you seek discovery against this company and it's a CIA front company. Saudi front company. It's not a CIA company. Yeah. Right. Pre presumably they can prevent discovery of the company's record of government secrets that yeah. might be at issue. So then it's just a he said, she said case, basically. Like, I mean, Al-Jabri wants the government to shut this case down. Exactly. Like, that seems abundantly clear. And so his attitude is like, oh, no, I, don't make me open up these books. Thank you very much, DOJ, for coming in and shutting down this Got lawsuit, it. which is being directed by a company that's a wholly owned entity of Mohammed bin Salman. And it's just, yeah. So... Very clever.
Very clever. I you feel must so pay those lawyers very well. <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. I will go first. Uh, I'm just going to flag for readers. Hot off the presses, I have here in my little hands a copy of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, written by Mark Polymeropoulos, who uh, probably listeners oh, to the podcast. Oh, it's going to be my object lesson. Oh. oh, really? See, listeners, now you know we don't necessarily coordinate these things. I will come up with a different object lesson, but uh, now I was going to do that one. Yeah. Exactly. It's sitting on my shelf. Yeah, so it's here. Um, so so um, unlike, I guess, the traditional CIA memoir, this I mean, this obviously has uh, stories from Mark's career in it, um, but it is written very much as a, a leadership guide and lessons that he learned in leadership in the agency. And Mark went quite high in the CIA and held a number of management positions, including a very senior one towards the end of his career. Listeners to this podcast or people who've listened to Lawfare or watched In Lua Fun will know, too, that Mark is one of the former CIA officers who's become come forward and become very public uh, with his story about suffering from what appears to be a brain injury uh, that could maybe have been caused by some kind of microwave weapon. This is the so-called uh, Havana syndrome. And uh, actually, uh, arguably, I think it's probably Mark has had more influence on pushing that issue to the top of the Biden administration and the CIA's agenda and getting more visibility on it. I don't know whether he talks about that in the book, but there are other cool things, I'm sure. Uh, I'm going to give it a read. You know, maybe we'll interview him on the Lawfare podcast. Cool. Tammy. All right. So my object lesson is also a book. It uh, is a brand new Carnegie Endowment book from my colleague and friend Stephen Feldstein called The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance. And what is so great about Stephen's book, there are two things. One is that unlike most discussions of this topic, it is not focused on Russia and China. It has three case studies that don't get looked at enough, in my view, but that are very instructive and very rich. He looks at Thailand, the Philippines, and Ethiopia, three countries that are in very different places in terms of the authoritarianism democracy spectrum, but three places where regimes have used these tools of digital repression. And the other thing that's really valuable about this book is that what he's really trying to understand is what motivates these regimes to use different kinds of tools in different ways at different times. In other words, how do they understand the cost benefit calculus of, you know, cutting off the Internet or putting in place laws that require tech companies to share data we're wielding disinformation or going after independent media or whatever. And that is incredibly useful. We need to understand that more. And so I think this is just a, a great step forward on this particular issue, which is one of widespread concern. And I want to give kudos to Stephen for doing the research and writing the book. And uh, I commend it to all of you. All right, Ben, what have you come up with in the two minutes that you've had to think of an object? My object lesson is the city of Chicago, yeah, where, <laughs> where tomorrow, it is an object. deprived of my object lesson, I will be having arrived by Amtrak train, and I look forward to uh, walking down the street by the, by the lake and it's seeing, a magnificent mile. Seeing all the Art Deco buildings and and greeting rational security listeners with a, a jaunty wave and a and a doff of my cap, which I shall not be wearing. Should be like, like on the road or something? Yeah. On the tracks that. again. <laughs> you and Amtrak, man, you're you're trying to vie with Joe Biden for the king of Amtrak. I'm waiting way. for him to to actually go riding on the city of New Orleans. Ooh, it's going to happen. I like this. It'll happen. Well, we will have to hear all about your adventures on the rails. You're like a hobo. Yes. Next What's week? the name of the train that goes to Chicago? Does it have a name? The hobo uh, it does have a name, but I don't remember it. Uh. <laughs> it's called the Midnight Run. <laughs>
Nice. We'll talk about that next week because for now, that's it for this week's issue. Of issue, issues, issue. Every issue. We might have issues. Yeah. It's an issue. There's a lot of issues on this podcast. <laughs> let me tell you. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find a commemorative Lawfare hobo train riding merchandise at offtherails.lawfare.train Amtrak Amtrak. we have a partnership this episode of Rational Security is brought to you by Amtrak Amtrak. and Chicago by the city of Chicago folks by the way if either of you Amtrak or Chicago would like to sponsor this podcast (laughs) by all means thelawfarestore.com Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us still on Facebook. We're there. Please be sure to leave a rating and review whenever you download this podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with people you're riding on the trains with. You can ride on trains again. Get on a train and take the podcast. It travels. Actually, you know, if everybody who listens, if every single person who downloads this episode of Rational Security just tweets it once, just with once. the words, the best podcast in the universe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's very, very simple. Is out right now. Yeah. Colon, and then a link to this episode of Rational Security. We will top out Apple's charts. Totally. Now, if that doesn't happen and you didn't tweet this episode of Rational Security, it's your fault. That's right. Kittens will die. That was grim. Our audio engineer this week <laughs> is Ian Enright. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Alexander Lukashenko and his one-man Judy Collins cover band, Skyjack the Clown. Skyjack the Clown. Oh, Isn't that a great clown name? Skyjack. <laughs> you would never allow this clown at your child's birthday party. <laughs> Skyjack the Clown. Here, come fly over here, children. <laughs> My God! Just call you Sophia Yan and call it a day. Seen Shane's eyes bulging out <laughs> as he said that. I may have had some clown experience. Wait, Shane, I need, I need a screenshot of that. Wait, <laughs> hang on. Too late. I... All right, that's totally getting tweeted. Um, Oh, God. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Tamara Coffin Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Don't fly over Belarus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.